verses one through 12, says this. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So... I'm going to focus on verses 1 through 6 today, and then Sam will, will teach us about 7 through 12. But as we begin chapter 2, Paul is shifting his focus, and he's shifting it from the evidences of the Thessalonians' election to a defense of his ministry. Now, this may seem like an unexpected turn in the course of this epistle. So a natural question arises here. Why does Paul find it necessary to defend his ministry? But we must remember that Paul's writing this letter based off a report he was given from Timothy. And you can see that if you jump over just real quick to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 6. Take a look at those. It says right there at the beginning of chapter 3, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer... We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. And then if you jump down to verse 6, it says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So what this means is that while Timothy was in Thessalonica, he likely encountered locals who were making various accusations against Paul and his ministry or had made such, such accusations to the, the, the church in Thessalonica who brought them to Timothy's attention. 
So upon hearing of these accusations, Paul thought the best response to them would be to include a defense of his conduct and ministry in his epistle to the church at Thessalonica. So this defense begins in chapter one, I'm sorry, in verse one, and ends in verse 12. That's what we just read. So today we're going to cover the first half of Paul's defense of his ministry. And Paul commits considerable space within the letter for making this defense, which tells us that it's important to him. And keep in mind, these accusations are coming from outsiders, not from members of the church. So what we see in our text today, through Paul's defense of his ministry, is a list of qualities that make up genuine, solid, biblical, Christ-like ministry and leadership. Paul is essentially giving, a list, giving us a list of qualities found in ministries that magnify God. And as we go through them, I think you're easily going to see why all of these are important in leading believers spiritually. Church ministry is simultaneously the most difficult and joyfully gratifying jobs, if you will, that one could ever aspire to do. Uh, you get to see God do his good work in so many different ways. You get to see him transform lives right in front of you. You get to watch him mold his people into the image of Christ. In church, it's a beautiful thing. But you also get to see the sorrow and suffering that sin causes. Sometimes you watch people leave the church because they choose sin over God. Sometimes it's necessary to call people out on their sin or rebuke them or correct them in some way. Ministry is an extremely difficult job. It requires leading, organizing, training of others, building others up, proclaiming and defending the truth, sharing the gospel, counseling, and when you're called to ministry, you're called to care for Christ's bride. That's a huge responsibility. And it's one that lasts for, for a lifetime. And it's required that this be done faithfully while overcoming your own weaknesses. No man can do the work of ministry on his own strength. The strength to do ministry comes from God. And in addition to all these things, and this is what I've just said is no, by no means an exhaustive list, we remember what God's word says in James chapter three, verse one, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The goal of the ministry is the same as for all God's people, and that's to glorify God through obedience to his word. And what we see in our text today is a detailed description of what a God-glorifying ministry looks like. And Paul's going to give us the attributes of such a ministry today. So I've titled this message, The Marks of God-Magnifying Ministry. 
Paul will reveal to us today the qualities of spiritual leadership and ministry that make it genuine and God-glorifying. And again, this is going to arise out of a defense of his ministry. And we can infer from the text that the charges and accusations have, have been brought on Paul, Silas, and Timothy's ministry in Thessalonica. Um, so to answer this charge, Paul's going to lay out a list, or marks, if you will, of evidences of genuine ministry. And Paul's going to answer these accusations by saying, no, my ministry is genuine. All, all of these things that you see, all these reasons, this is what I'm giving you to prove to you that it's a genuine ministry because it contains all these attributes, all these marks. And Paul's going to reveal these marks to, uh, of God-glorifying ministry to us today in three sections of the text. So first, we're going to see six marks in the arrival, verses 1 and 2. Second, we're going to see six more marks in the appeal, verses 3 and 4. And third, we'll see three marks in their actions, found in verses 5 and 6. So we're going to cover verses 1 through 6 today. Um, leave room under these headings. Um, so when we for when we talk about each mark, I'll, I'll review, reveal them as we come to them. But we need to take a close look at all of these marks, church, because we're called sub to submit to our elders as our spiritual leaders. They're our ministers. Now, Sure, we want to make that spiritual leadership we are receiving genuine. We want to make sure it's genuine. We want our spiritual leadership to be what God says it should be. We want our elders to be doing what God says they should be doing. And we want them to do it in the manner in which God says they should be doing it. So just to remove the tension in just a little bit, I can tell you, my brothers and sisters, with not a single shred or doubt in my heart and my mind, given the wisdom that I have received through God's word, that we receive genuine spiritual leadership here at the Field Church. Amen. Amen. You're going to find that as we go through these, this scripture today, that God has blessed us greatly without, with the elders that he's provided for us. But don't take my word for it. Let's hold it up to the scrutiny of God's word. But let not your heart be troubled. I can promise you, after we walk away today, you're not going to be desiring to have a uh, difficult conversation with Sam or Chad or Josh or Tyler or Mike, so um, that's, good. that's the good news. But there's a great deal of rev, uh, relevance in this section today. So let's get into our scripture. We're going to start with verses 1 and 2 in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, where we'll see Paul talking about the missionary's arrival in Thessalonica. So follow along with me, verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So verse one begins with this phrase, for you yourselves know. And I want to bring that 
to your attention because it appears quite frequently in our text. Um, if you look at verse two, right after the word Philippi, um, you see the, the phrase, as you know. And then if you go down to verse five, right after the word flattery, there it is again. And these, uh, these three phrases sitting in the midst of our text today are important. And we can also see similar phrases. If you go back to chapter one, verse five, you see the phrase, you know. Chapter two, verse nine, you see the phrase, for you remember. Chapter two, verse 10, you see, you are witnesses. And in chapter two, verse 11, you see the phrase, for you know. These phrases are working together as reminders. Their significance is that Paul sees the best vindication of him and his missionaries' ministry to be the Thessalonians themselves. He's petitioning them to think about what they already know and have experienced with his ministry. Notice Paul doesn't gloat about some set of accomplishments. He's telling them you already know that this is all the truth. The fruits of their ministry is self-evident. And this brings us to the first mark of God magnifying ministry. It sets an example. It sets an example. And so this example set by our elders should be imitated. They set this example so that by us imitating it, we too can glorify God in our own lives. There are example of Christ. All right, the elders imitate Christ. We imitate the elders. And in doing so, we imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, uh, which is also written by Paul, by the way. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I mean, this is quite clear. Yes? Yeah. Our elders are to set an example for us to follow. Moving on to the rest of the verse one, Paul and Silas and Timothy's coming was not in vain. The Greek word here used for vain can mean inconsequential, fruitless, without purpose, or lacking importance or impact. And you can go back to chapter one, Sam just got done preaching it for us, and see what was achieved in their coming. But it's important that we understand that the achievements recognized in chapter one, the evidence, evidences of the Thessalonians' election, that wasn't Paul's work or Silas's work or Timothy's work, that was God's work, all right? God did it through them, but that was God's work that was being done. And this brings us to the second point, our second mark of a God-magnifying ministry, and that is that it depends on God. In other words, the minister realizes that he can neither perform the requirements of the ministry nor persist in it without God making provision for him to do so. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, and these are Paul's words again, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. 2 Corinthians 
chapter four, verse one. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So God is responsible for giving them the ministry. God helps them persist in the ministry. God strengthens the minister and the minister knows that he needs to depend on God to do the work of the ministry. They depend on God. Now, starting in verse two, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, um, we're gonna stop here and, and this is gonna lead us to the next mark of genuine ministry, which is that it is tenacious. Tenacity carries with it the idea of extreme determination. And we can see this in verse two, that despite their treatment in Philippi and in the midst of much conflict in Thessalonica, Paul, Silas, and Timothy continued to share the gospel. And I want you to take a closer look at that with me. Take a closer look at their suffering at Philippi and their conflict in Thessalonica. So turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Go there with me, Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to start in verses 10 through 13. I'm going to jump around just a little bit to give you an idea of what they're referring to here in verse 2. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 16, verses 10 through 13. It says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, uh, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, all right? So he's arriving in Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained there in, the, in this city some days. All right, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come, come together, all right? Staying in chapter 16, jump over to verse 19 now. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are dis disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful to us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And then the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to, uh, to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So at this point, they've been stripped down, beaten, dragged through town, thrown into prison. All right, now go to the very last verse in chapter 16, verse 40, and we'll read through, through 17.9. It says, so they went out of the prison, all right, so they're out of prison now, and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So now they're going to go to Thessalonica, starting in 17, verse 1. Now they passed through Amphilus and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, 
where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaimed to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined, and Paul and, uh, and, joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the, ra of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So prison, beatings, false accusations, persecution, and none of it stops Paul or Silas or Timothy. They're determined to share the gospel. And there's nothing that's going to stop them. I mean, his ministry is tenacious. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I mean, church, how, how often do we let something way smaller than that stop us from sharing the gospel? And get a little nervous, you know, all kinds of reasons. I mean, Paul is sitting here saying, hey, these people are gonna beat me, but they're gonna know the gospel when they do, okay? So, I mean, that's a great example. Uh, Philippians chapter four, verses 11 through 13. Now, not, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Depends on God. It's tenacious. Can't be stopped. And as you know, all right, moving on in our verse, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of a much conflict. Now, this brings us to the next mark of God magnifying ministry. It's bold. It's bold. And notice that the boldness is in God. The very definition of boldness is the willingness to take risks, and it carries a notation of courage. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
And one thing that I hope you noticed in those verses that I just read, they highlight it well, that Paul is asking for prayers that he might boldly proclaim the gospel. And that's the things that our elders, our spiritual leaders, as they work in ministry, you know, they're not necessarily doing things that are in their skill sets. See, none of our elders or any biblical elder anywhere has in and of themselves all the things that are necessary to, to fulfill the marks that we're talking about today, okay? God has to supply those to them, all right? They don't just come out and are able to do everything that we're, we're talking about today. They have to depend on God for that, just as we have to depend on God for that. Acts chapter four, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Church, they, they didn't naturally just start being bold. God had to help them with that. They gained the Spirit, then they were bold. And we also see another mark in this same area of our scripture. God magnifying ministry declares the gospel. Romans chapter one, verses nine and 16. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And what is... The Lord command us in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. It says, and Jesus said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole world. So again, our elders are setting an example for us. They're sharing the gospel. We're all commanded to share the gospel of the Lord. And in this verse, we can see that Paul shared it despite much conflict. The Greek word for conflict here denotes being under great strain or opposition, a struggle, a fight. And we get an idea about this conflict, um, and we were reading it just a minute ago in the missionary's journey to Philippi and Thessalonica. The end of those conflicts would be nowhere in sight because, look, after Paul leaves Thessalonica, he's going to go to Berea, he's going to go to Athens. He's going to go to Corinth. He's going to go to Ephesus. He's literally going from one beating to another to share the gospel. Every town he goes in, he knows it's waiting on him. And he's not stopping. And for someone who preaches the gospel or who shares the gospel, the true gospel, it's never an easy thing. The true gospel is offensive to sinners. And those who preach it will certainly never win a popularity contest. And think about this. When you share the gospel, you're telling someone the truth that they've sinned against a holy God and the only chance that they have to avoid an eternity in hell is to put their faith in Jesus Christ who died as a payment for the debt caused by their sin and who was raised and that they need to turn away from their sin. They need to turn away from their idols and repent and turn toward God. 
Folks, that's not a popular message. And you can see that happening with our missionaries as they go from town to town. They're preaching the gospel faithfully. They're getting beat. They're getting persecuted. They're getting thrown in jail. Eventually, they'll all be killed. That's the price they pay to share that message. It's not a popular message. Galatians chapter one, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me, by me is not man's gospel. It's God's gospel. First Peter chapter two, verses six through eight. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whomever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor for you who believe so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The gospel causes stumbling and offense to those who don't believe. So just a quick review. So far, we've seen that God magnifying ministry it depends on God, it's bold, it's tenacious, it declares the gospel, and it sets an example, all right? And I just want to point out to you that just one more, kind of the common thread that's running through all of these marks that we've talked about so far is that it has confidence in God, has confidence in God's power that God will do the things he says he's going to do. And notice confidence in God, not confidence, the minister, not confidence in his own abilities. All right. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses five through eight. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in, in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But verse seven, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Church, we want our elders, we want our ministers to be the man described in verses seven and eight. Yes? It stands to reason that if our elders are the men or man that's described in verses five or six, they're gonna lead us to be that man also, or woman, all right? So we want them to set that example for us because the example they set, there's a reason why they're called shepherds because we follow that example. We want that to be a God-magnifying, a God-glorifying example. But we've got to move on. So let's go to verses three and four in our text. And, we're at the, and in verses three and four, we're going to see the appeal. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses three and four. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, 
but to please God who tests our hearts. So in verse three, Paul says, um, our, and that's being himself, Silas, and Timothy, their message does not spring from error. Now, this brings forth the next mark of God magnifying ministry, which is that it's committed to the truth. This is a real straightforward point, okay? Um, Paul's ministry was marked by an unwavering commitment to the truth. Just listen to how he closes his first letter to Timothy, and this is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 through 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some has swerved from the faith. In other words, stick to the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful to the word, faithful to the truth. Still in verse 3. We see that the message does not spring from impurity or any attempt to deceive. The Greek word used here for impurity is most commonly associated with sexual purity. And this is not forbidding God's plan for sex, which is in the confines of marriage. Um, but in Paul's day, many of the religious practices that were going on, especially with the Greeks and the pagans, included some sort of sexual ritual. Specifically with the Greeks, one way to commune with some of the false gods that they worship was through sex with a temple prostitute. All right, so many of the religious uh, charlatans that would travel from town to town, um, they were in search of two things, either money or sexual favors. So no doubt, people in Thessalonica see Paul coming in here preaching the gospel. They associate, well, this must be another one of these town-to-town charlatans here. And so they're accusing him of seeking after sexual favor. So Paul is saying here that what he, Silas, and Timothy are, are preaching isn't motivated by the desire for sex or any other deception. All right? So this brings us to the next mark of God magnifying ministry. It has integrity. 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to to Christ. So in verse three, we see that ministers should be committed to the truth and have integrity. All right, those are the two things we see in verse three. So let's move on to verse four. Let's read it. But just as we have been approved by God not to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. 
So looking at the first half of verse four, but tells us that Paul is contrasting what was said in verse three. So unlike those who are not committed to the truth and have no integrity, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. The mark of God glorifying ministry we see here is that it is approved by God. And Paul here is addressing a massive issue that we, faced in, that we face in Christianity today. Pulpits all over the world are filled with men who have not been approved by God. Today, men do all, all, all sorts of things um, with a pulpit. Some of them, they, they start a church like they're starting a business. And other men just feel vacant pastorate positions like, like it's just a volunteer worker. You know, you just put in an application for it. If you want to know why churches are filled with weak, self-glorifying Christians that come to church so they can see a live concert and get self-help advice, all the while doing nothing to glorifying God, the God that they claim to worship, it's because their leaders haven't been approved by God. The shepherds of those flocks are leading that entire herd straight off a cliff to death and destruction. And we've got to pray for them, folks. We've got to pray that despite that bad leadership, that God will pull them out of that. So naturally you'll ask, as I say, that leadership needs to be approved by God. How do we know who's been approved by God? I mean, he doesn't just come here and say that one and that one, right? So in Paul's case, you know, we, we clearly can see how he was approved by God in Acts chapter 9, and we won't go there, but Paul was directly approved by God, as were the rest of the apostles. But notice what it says here in verse 4. It says, we have been approved by God, and that we is bringing Silas and Timothy into view as being approved by God. So how did they get approved by God? They were no doubt approved by Paul and perhaps the other apostles. So here's the point that I'm making about ministers being approved by God. They must be approved by other men who have been approved by God. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And when Paul and Barnabas had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, elders, right? That's what he's talking about, is appoint elders. That's what's in view here in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Appoint elders. But not just any elders. They have to be approved by God by being approved by biblical elders, okay? You have to be approved by God. You have to be approved by other elders. It's not something where you decide, well, I wanna just start a church on the other side of town, so you know, I'll, just, I'll, I'll just go do that. No, if you're gonna lead a flock, you need to be approved by God to lead that flock. And 
Also, I just want to add that all of our elders, including what we see here, Silas and Timothy, and even Paul, they were tested, okay? It's not just a approval or denial. Oh, you want to do the job? Well, come on, do it. No, they get tested. And the other mark we see here, and this is kind of the flip side of the coin of being approved by God, is they have authority. So they're approved by God. They're given authority by God. And this is also important um, because if you've been approved by God, you're a herald for the king. You speak the king's decrees with the king's authority. Now here's what Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter two, verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And he says something similar to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who is the, to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. One more, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In other words, elders have authority over their flocks. This is for the purpose of caring for them. But in order for them to care for you, you need to submit to their leadership, submit to their authority. So God approves elders, and then he gives them the authority to tend to his sheep. So think about this now, church. When a man gets up in the pulpit to speak, he's declaring, thus saith the Lord. That's a huge responsibility. And with that... We're going to move to the last half of verse four. It says, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. So another mark of God magnifying ministry here, accountability to God. So what Paul's saying here is that he's not worried about whether or not men are pleased or approve of his message. His sole concern is that it's pleasing to God. All right, because God knows the truth that's hidden deep within all of our hearts, right? So they want, they're accountable to God. First Corinthians chapter four, verses one through five. And this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am aware of any for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Talking about ministers right there. Psalms chapter seven, 
Verse eight and nine, the Lord judges all peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteousness who you test the minds and the hearts, O righteous God. So all ministers will ultimately be held accountable to God and they will not escape God's judgment. Even if they are to fool people under their care, they're not fooling God. So in verses three and four, another little recap for you. We can see that the marks of God-magnifying ministry are being committed to the truth, having integrity, approved by God, having authority, and being accountable to God. And kind of the common thread that runs through all these marks is submitting to God, submission to God. So the the elder or the minister submits to God. First Timothy chapter four, verses seven through 10. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For, for to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So it's quite clear God-magnifying spiritual leadership must submit to God's authority, which is his word, right? Here's all of God's authority right here for us to see and to submit to, including our elders. Let's move now to verses five and six where we'll see some more marks of God-magnifying ministry through Paul and Silas and Timothy's actions So let's read verses five and six. For we never come with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made a demand as apostles of Christ. So beginning with verse five, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. The mark we see here is that God-magnifying ministry is altruistic. In other words, it's done without concern for personal benefit, gain, or self-promotion. This requires a little bit of explanation. Um, If you ever look up flattery in the Bible, you'll quickly come to the conclusion that God does not like flattery at all. It's a sin, Just a couple verses concerning flattery. I found some for you. This is by no means exhaustive, but I wanted to read these to you. Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. Psalm chapter 12, verses two and three. Everyone utters lies to his neighbors. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. 
the tongue that makes great boasts. One more, Proverbs 29.5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. In other words, the man who flatters his neighbor is setting a trap for him. Flattery is a symptom, church, of two major idols. First, the idol of self, which all of you know better as pride. Second, it's the idol of control. So flattery's done for the hope of promoting oneself, and that's why you flatter. And I don't really think that we need to validate, validate what greed means here in the, in the text. So God-glorying ministry is not done for the benefit of the minister. It's done for those who he's serving. It's altruistic. And this brings us to verse six. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So what Paul's saying here is that he's not seeking approval or accolades or recognition from man. In other words, he's not seeking his own glory. Concerning the second half of verse six, the demands that Paul's referring to are likely of prestige or respect considering what's in view in verse six is glory from others. So that's probably what he's talking about by making demands. Um, but now his use of apostles here, because obviously we don't recognize Timothy and Silas as apostles. So he's using that word as a more generalized sense of the word, um, carrying the meaning of sent ones. We're all sent ones, Paul, Silas, Timothy. All right. You could also think about it as maybe saying my fellow workers or soldiers in Christ. All right. So verse six, though, reveals another mark of God magnifying ministry, and that is that it is humble. So both halves of verse six indicate that the ministry, the, the missionaries have no desire for praise, respect, recognition, or any other benefit that might puff them up. So the two marks we saw in verse five and six are that of being altruistic and being humble. And let me add one more because I've been giving you kind of the, kind of the thing that holds all of them together, the underlying one. Um, these, the underlying thread of these would be that they glorify God. All right, they glorify God, not themselves. So in glorifying God, is really the goal, right? Whether it's, it's, it's for ministry or for life, we want to glorify God, right? Right? Yep, yep. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Glorifying God is the whole duty of man. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So even the good works that you do through your faith are for the purpose of glorifying God. And obviously, we want our elders, our ministers to do this. So as we close...
There's many things that we need to consider from our text today. This is what genuine ministry looks like. This is what ministry that's focused on glorifying God looks like. And we have to know what genuine ministry looks like so we'll know when we're not seeing it, right? When we're faced with ministry, that's not genuine. And how does God's word instruct us on spotting false teachers? Matthew chapter seven, verses 15 through 20 comes to mind. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from, gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but every diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad, fr bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Brothers, sisters, effective ministry is enabled by God. It's sustained by God for the purposes of God to the glory of God. And one thing I hope that you noticed as we went through this today, there was talk about the character of the ministry and very little talk about the abilities of the, of the minister. I mean, this is, this is glorifying God. God is working through these ministers, through these elders. And there's not a single faithful ministry that has ever existed that wasn't upheld or maintained by God. Men are not strong enough to do the work of God on their own might. And praise be to God that he provides men to do the work of ministry. That's a gift from him to us, church, that we have men that will lead us in this way. And God has indeed blessed the filled church. Strong group of godly men for our shepherds. And church, pray for them. Pray for them, okay? The one word that should not have entered your brain today while I've been talking is the word easy, okay? Because this service, this way of serving God is not easy. Pray for them. And you should be asking yourself right now, well, what's the, what's the right way to respond to this message? Like, you, you've just heard what a godly ministry is, so... How do I respond to that? Well, luckily for you, I found some good responses. And they're all in Hebrews chapter 13. And I'll just read them to you. Uh, first, we've got Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. I read it earlier, but I'm going to read it again to you. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's a good response. Two other verses, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, 
for what would for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And I just want to leave y'all with one more beautiful image of God magnifying ministry uh, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So if you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It says this. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and by the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, and having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children. Widen your hearts also. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word today. We thank you, Lord, that you've revealed to us what is a ministry that glorifies you, what spiritual leadership that glorifies you looks like. And Father, we are so thankful for the men, our elders, that you've given us here at the Field Church. We pray for them, Lord. We pray that they'll continue to set a Christ-like example for us. We pray also, Lord, through your strength, that we will submit to their leadership and follow the example that they set for us, that we may glorify you and become more Christ-like every day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.